Okay. For those of you who do know something of Walcott and Naipaul, you may actually be surprised to find them sharing the same lecture because their fan bases do not intersect. Fans of Walcott often accuse Naipaul of a colonial mentality. Many fans of Naipaul don't read Walcott at all, perhaps because he's a poet and therefore lacking in prosaic clear sight. Of late, the relations between the writers have been strained. Walcott was stung by Naipaul's account of his literary emergence in his memoir, A Writer's People, to the Calypsonian comment in his own poem, The Mongoose, I have been bitten, I must avoid infection, or else I'll be as dead as Naipaul's fiction. He considered the enigma of arrival disfigured by prejudice towards Trinidadians and particularly Negroes by his perceived injuries and loneliness as a Caribbean writer, by the idealisation of history and order, and by conflation of these with, quote, their alleged synonyms, culture and art. But he has admired his talent, calling him, this is Walcott and Naipaul, our finest writer of the English sentence. There isn't a better English around. Quote, despite his horror of being claimed, we West Indians are proud of Naipaul. And that is his enigmatic fate as well, that he should be so cherished by those he despises. Naipaul also admires Walcott, although he has reservations connected to his sense that Walcott's talent has been, quote, all but strangled by his colonial situation. A few years ago, he wrote in The Guardian about how impressed he was when, reading his poems in London in 1955, I thought I could understand how important Pushkin was for the Russians, doing for them what hadn't been done before. I put Walcott as high as that. As editor of the BBC Caribbean service literary programme Caribbean Voices, he published everything that Walcott sent to him. For those of you who've chosen Walcott as a special author, I hope that what I'm going to say will cast him in a new light for you, that of his similarities to, as well as differences from, his great rival. Let's just compare their biographies. Walcott and Naipaul were born into ethnic minority communities in Windward Antillean Islands in 1930 and 1932, respectively. Naipaul slightly younger. They had a British... um, secondary and higher education, did literary degrees, aspired to write themselves into the English canon and were awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1992 and 2001. That's uh, Walcott nearly a decade earlier. Walcott is part African, English and Dutch and he was raised in a middle-class, standard English-speaking, Methodist family on... Catholic, French Creole-speaking, St Lucia. Naipaul is a third-generation East Indian raised in a poor, rural, Hindi and English Creole-speaking Hindu family in Trinidad. Walcott has acted, directed and taught creative writing at Boston University. Naipaul has lived only from his writing, as, as the backs of many editions of his books will tell you. Walcott lived in Naipaul's native Trinidad for 20 years and now moves between his various homes and families in Boston and around the Caribbean, whilst Naipaul has made his enigmatic arrival in Wiltshire, where he lives and is almost never gives interviews. The works I'm going to be um, quoting from are those on your handouts. Walcott's 1990 poem, Omaros, will probably be familiar to you all. It was the work which finally clinched his Nobel Prize. But I'm also going to be considering his essays, What the Twilight Says of 1970, The Muse of History, 74, and The Sea is History. His remarks set a 1989 reading of his 1979 poem of the same name and the essay The Antilles, Fragments of Epic Memory of 1992. For those of you who don't know him as an essayist, I recommend him. I consider him as great a prose stylist as a poet. For Naipaul, I'm going to be concentrating on his relatively little-known 1965 history of Trinidad, The Loss of El Dorado. 
I've chosen these works for their relevance to my dual topic, which is myth and history. I'll start with history, by which I mean not the sum total of what has actually occurred, but what is known and perceived to have occurred. Caribbean history, as both Walcott and Naipaul understand it, is problematic by virtue of its presence and by virtue of its absence. Walcott sums up why the presence of Caribbean history is problematic. Quote, Dissemination from the Arawak downwards is the blasted root of Antillean history. Certainly since about 4000 BC, Siboni, Arawaks, Caribs and Europeans have displaced one another in the Caribbean and the last have displaced Africans and Indians to the Caribbean. In other words, the Caribs were those who wiped out the Arawaks who had previously been there. History haunts. Naipaul feels there is slavery in the vegetation. And Walcott says, history is there in the lances of Cain, a green prison. Who in the new world does not have a horror of the past, whether his ancestor was torturer or victim? Absent history is either ignorance of what has been known and narrated or consciousness of what cannot be known or has not been narrated. Cannot be known because of the successive near eradication of cultures. Not narrated because colonial education would have it this way. In Patrick Chamoiseau's term, le nion d'une non-histoire imposée, the vacuum of an imposed non-history. Walcott writes that he grew up with two ideas of history, history with dates that affected people and places abroad, and a historical darkness encompassing, for example, St Lucia. Both the brutal content and the fragmentary extent of what is known and has been told makes the Caribbean a fertile ground for myths about it and in it, and in it about other places. Naipaul, quote, had seen myself coming to England as to some purely literary region where, untrammeled by the accidents of history or background, I could make a romantic career for myself as a writer. His earlier writings repeatedly expose the myth of England as a myth. In The Mimic Men, Ralph Singh's idea of England crumbles on contact with it. But arguably one reason why Walcott writes far less about the mythology of England is that he is less attracted by it. The Enigma of Arrival by Naipaul celebrates the gift of a second life in Wiltshire. A somewhat mythical Wiltshire if we take myth in Levi Strauss's sense of fulfilling unconscious desires. The critic Kudjo describes that work as the most intense of all his fantasies. Naipaul is more robust in attacking other mythologies. His India of my fantasy, bear in mind this is where his family originally came from, is destroyed on his arrival in Bombay when he reflects, perhaps all lands of myth were like this, dazzling with light, familiar to drabness. As in the Caribbean itself, the people, quote, had the vaguest idea of their history of how they had got to that flat barrenness in the Caribbean Sea so far from the big continents, so far even from the other islands, some people spoke of a shipwreck. Walcott diagnoses that the West Indian mind, historically hungover, exhausted, prefers to take its revenge in nostalgia, to narrow its eyelids in a schizophrenic daydream of an African Eden that existed before its exile hence Rastafarianism. Both writers condemn the moral simplification that corresponds to such mythologization. Naipaul comments that in his childhood, history was a fairy tale, not so much about slavery as about its abolition, the good defeating the bad. It was the only way the tale could be told. Any other version would have ended in ambiguity and alarm. Walcott condemns the translation of such vision into art which is forced to exclude certain contradictions, for history cannot be ambiguously recorded. 
However, with respect to myth, Naipaul and Walcott have almost contrary reputations. Naipaul is praised by his admirers for transparent prose which banishes illusions about history and destroys myths. The cover of the 1988 Penguin edition of The Enigma of Arrival carries the blazon by Bernard Levin, the work of a man with no illusions. Less favourable critics note the relish of destroying illusions. Richard Cronin considers that Naipaul has, quote, travelled the world as a self-appointed missionary intent on the destruction of all human illusions, end quote. Illusions of black power are attacked in guerrillas, of Hindus in an area of darkness and India a million mutinies now, and of Muslims in Among the Believers and Islamic Journey. One purpose of his history book, The Loss of El Dorado, is to demythologize Trinidadian history. Quote, a fairy tale about Columbus and a fairy tale about the strange customs of the Aboriginal Caribs and Arawaks. Walcott, on the other hand, is praised by his admirers for richly layered poetry and drama which banishes the dead hand of history and creates and revives myths. These reputations are not wholly wrong, but they're not wholly right either, particularly with regard to the mythologization of the concept of history itself. Quote, the word, the word called history is the question, said Walcott in 1989. I'm talking about the idea of history becoming a deity, a force, as much as science has become a deity. People who have confidence to dominate the idea of time do it under the name of this alleged force called history. That is, Walcott conceives of history as a Foucault discourse which expresses a dominant power. It justifies, is translated into, and is reinforced by real force, which determines events, which shapes history. It's also guilty by its association with progress, which for Walcott is a very bad thing. A Faustian idea that leads to Nazi Germany or to empires. In The Schooner Flight, he writes, progress is something to ask Caribs about. They kill them by millions. This progress is myth in Barthes' sense of the term, a discourse which makes ideology appear as nature and fact. On several occasions, Walcott accuses Naipaul of worshipping history. In his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, he explained that there was this conviction in Froude, that's a Victorian historian, that since history is based on achievement, and since the history of the Antilles was so genetically corrupt, so depressing in its cycles of massacres, slavery and indenture, a culture was inconceivable and nothing could ever be created in those ramshackle ports. Thirty years earlier, Naipaul had placed a quotation from Froude's The English in the West Indies, 1887, as the frontispiece of the Middle Passage. It is this. There are no people there in the true sense of the word with a character and purpose of their own. The Middle Passage now con contains the now notorious comment by Naipaul, history is built around achievement and creation and nothing was created in the West Indies. The loss of El Dorado, that, though, is a far more complex work. Its forward ends. An obscure part of the new world is momentarily touched by history. The darkness closes up again. The Chaguanis disappear in silence. The disappearance is unimportant. It is part of nobody's story. But this was how a colony was created in the new world. There were two moments when Trinidad was touched by history. This book attempts to record those two moments. The story ends in 1813. Here, history is kept safely inside inverted commas. The words unimportant and nobody's story critique as well as correspond to an imperial discourse. The silence of the Chaguanis is vocalised by being noted. 
Naipaul recalled in The Middle Passage that we could never be convinced of the value of reading the history of Trinidad, which was, as everyone said, only a dot on the map of the world. The loss of El Dorado is his attempt to write this history. The forward also states that the work grew out of Naipaul's increasing sense of wonder at his own location. Whereas as a child, quote, it was hard to feel any wonder at the fact that more than 400 years after Columbus, there were Indians in a part of the world he had called the Indies and that the people he had called Indians had vanished. Wonder came later. He became defamiliarized from the myth of imperial history. The book's compass is centred on Trinidad, leaving European events and movements on the periphery. With the exception of one trial which takes place in London, the plot doesn't leave the area of Trinidad, Guyana and Venezuela. The danger for Walcott would come in Naipaul's claim that the idea behind the book was to attach the island, the little place in the mouth of the Orinoco River, to great names and events, Columbus, the search for El Dorado, Sir Walter Raleigh. Certainly, it undermines the greatness of these people and events by representing all three of them as failures. But this project also honours the history deity. After the abolition of slavery, quote, Port of Spain was a place where things had happened and nothing showed. Only people remained and their past had dropped out of all the history books. Naipaul correspondingly summarises the history of 19th and 20th century Trinidad on pages 350 to 351. He claimed to have no source volumes about Trinidad. I had to go to the documents themselves, documents held in the British Museum, the Public Records Office and the London Library. But this overlooks the 19th century histories of Trinidad, which exist and were written by local amateur Creole historians. For example, Baud's 1848 two-volume anti-British French history of Trinidad under Spanish rule. And this is ironic given the overlap between their methods, that of these local Creole historians, and his own. His reliance on documents and his narrative form were old-fashioned by 1965, when most of the historiography being produced at the St Augustine campus of the University of the West Indies, that's the campus which is on Trinidad, was socially and culturally or ethnically orientated. Some contemporary historians employed oral sources and very little was being written about Trinidad before the 1770s. That was under the influence of metropolitan trends in historiography, native socialism and black power. The loss of El Dorado makes no attempts to reconstruct, reconstruct the stories which it, which it acknowledges that the document writers excluded. Quote, the slave was never real. In the records, the slave is faceless, silent, with an identification rather than a name. He has no story. Naipaul's attempts to, quote, reconstruct the human story as best I could extends only to the document's authors and to those to whom they cho choose to describe in detail. Caribs are exterminated in a parenthesis, which reads, open brackets, the French and English, both claiming the island of St. Kitts, united to exterminate the Caribs in one swift action, close brackets, full stop. Explicitly, though, the work undermines the mythical thinking of those whom it describes. Naipaul gives the probable factual basis for the myth of El Dorado, Inca tribes who had wandered east. He corrects the source documents. They marched through the thick woods over, and now he's quoting a source, high and unpleasing mountains which do not exist. Naipaul is informing us that those mountains don't exist. He is also even-handed in his mythoclasm and also critiques the anti-Spanish revolutionaries. Francisco Miranda is presented as a romantic, a would-be Inca emperor, with an exile-induced mythologizing vision of Venezuelan society which included Native Americans but excluded blacks. He envisions a future of perfect justice and harmony after the revolution. Instead, what occurs is a century of violence. 
Likewise, the nocturnal fantasy world of the rebellious slaves, in which they assume colonial titles and plot revolution against whites, disperse in, quote, the surrender, the whip in daylight. But the text is not consistently mythoclastic, nor does it always pretend to know the truth. In many passages, the narrator is less than omniscient and acknowledges his dependence on the documents available. Sometimes he doesn't give an opinion. He describes several stories which resemble that of the Robinson Crusoe story without adjudicating between their merits as sources for the novel. I should say that I have seen Robinson Crusoe's island. It's between Trinidad and Tobago, but it's only one of a large number of pretenders to that name. Often the boundary between Naipaul's narrative and his source documents is blurred. That's partly because his quotations can be very long, up to 50 lines. Sometimes time in the two is conflated. Quote, time vanishes into Berio's narrative like effort, like the landscape itself, and Berio is ready to start on his third journey. Ten years have passed. Or, at midnight, Wyatt's narrative jumps and becomes obscure. Sometimes Nifel's text is inflected by free and direct speech for those he writes about. For examples, the missionaries had come out from Spain in a hurry. They didn't have all they needed. They needed a bell to call the Indians to prayer. They needed paper. They needed almost everything. Or the apolytically asyntactic description of the jail as a place of horror. And if you ever read Naipaul's History of El Dorado, you won't forget the description of the jail. The planters entering the jail faced the tortures, confessions and rotting bodies like the African darkness that might overwhelm them all. Power turning to insects to ravage a plantation, charms killing the canes, money turning to dung, Negroes dying in convulsions, the world ending in blood and flames. In the phrase, cannibalism was never a joke to the Spaniards, it aroused the same wish to mutilate, destroy and enslave as did sodomy, another open Indian practice. The last five words, sodomy, another open Indian practice, reflects the Spanish perspective subtly through distanced ethnographic vocabulary and syntax. Negro slaves are pieces without inverted commas, until on page 102 in the mid-17th century, the latter terminology is abolished by missionaries and then Naipaul himself no longer uses it. What's interesting here is that it's the most postmodern aspect of Naipaul's historiography, which most intersect with imperial discourse, precisely by virtue of their refusal to judge. They are also the most fictionalising. The literary aspect of The Loss of El Dorado, which reminds you that it's being written by a novelist, goes beyond that which Herodotus, Ranker, Mommsen and Froude regard as an inevitable part of historiography. There are no notes to this work of history. The sources are identified in a postscript rather than listed in a bibliography. Picador classifies its 2001 edition as literature, the novelistic title, The Loss of El Dorado, doubtless sells many more copies of this book than A Colonial History of Trinidad, 1592 to 1813, would have done. Its episodic interweaving of the stories of individuals is in the mode of a realistic 19th century English novel. New characters are introduced considerably in advance of their names. Chapters end on cliffhangers. The elegiac past-future subjunctive, he would never see a town again, is frequently used. Minor but memorably described characters reappear unexpectedly, like in Dickens, whom uh, Naipaul greatly admired. In subject matter, particularly in its first part on Spanish Trinidad, it resembles a 19th century imperial adventure novel. The legend of El Dorado, narrative within narrative, witness within witness, had become like the finest fiction, indistinguishable from truth. The work's own construction, narrative within narrative, makes this not indistinguishable from, but related to, the finest fiction. The loss of El Dorado attempts an answer to the questions of the Middle Passage, and this is on your handouts, 
How can the history of this West Indian futility be written? What tone shall the historian adopt? Shall he be as academic as Sir Alan Burns? Shall he, like Salvador da Madariaga, weigh one set of brutalities against another? Shall he, like the West Indian historians, who can only now begin to face their history, be icily detached and tell the story of the slave trade as if it were just another aspect of mercantilism? The history of the islands can never be satisfactorily told. The answer made to his own question by the loss of El Dorado is to make an intersection with fiction. As Naipaul admits, my instinct was towards fiction. I found it constricting to have to deal with fact. I was glamoured by the idea of the long journey. This glamour produces the second-order myth, persistent to this day, which sees Raleigh's futile search for El Dorado as heroic. Naipaul describes the end of the Spanish phase of empire with regret. Part one, the third Marquisate, concludes, the new world as medieval adventure had ended. It became a cynical extension of the developing old world, its commercial underside. No one would look at Trinidad or Guyana again with the eyes of Raleigh. Whereas on the one hand, people's delusions by myth are stressed by out, but throughout. When Europeans stop mythologizing Trinidad, the narrative ends. As Naipaul writes in The Enigma of Arrival, I had given myself a past and a romance of the past. The romance by which I had attached it to the rest of the world continued to be possessed by me as much as the imaginative worlds in my other fictional books. So the loss of El Dorado, to conclude on this, is an unsettled hybrid of genre and discourse. It combines Victorian with postmodern historiographical techniques. The first are used to attack anti-imperial mythologies, whilst offering de, de facto support for the imperial myth of history criticised by Walcott. The postmodern techniques soften the mythoclasm by denying the narrator omniscience, allowing for the intersection of imperial and his own discourses, and allowing a novelistic, novelistic enjoyment of the romance of myth. The work is neither as colonial nor as mythoclastic as his critics and admirers respectively claim. Peter Hughes is right to state that Naipaul's power to translate between history and fiction, between the traveller's dream and the ethnographer's romance, which obsessively marks and distinguishes his work, is a power that Claude Levi-Strauss has defined as the power to make myths. So let's bring in Walcott. If Naipaul's primary concern is with the absence um, of Trinidadian history and colonial education, Walcott's is with the irrevocable loss of oral history and myth through the near extinction of native Caribbeans and in the Middle Passage. Walcott, in fact, is more haunted by history than Naipaul. In The Mimic Men, again by Naipaul, Ralph has a black school, school friend called Brown. Together, they, quote, walked in a garden of hell among trees, still without popular names, whose seeds had sometimes been brought to our island in the intestines of slaves. This was what Brown taught. Distress was part of his reality. Was nothing more, could lead to nothing. Much of Walcott's writing contains both Brown's distress and Ralph's wish to be free of that distress. Whereas Ralph simply drops Brown as a friend, Walcott contains Brown's discourse persistently within himself and tries to strip it of its hurtful power. Walcott, I would say, uses the word history in two ways. The first I've already mentioned, the imperial deity of progress. The other is an abstract which combines his negative feelings towards what he knows and knows he cannot know of Caribbean history with his second order negative feelings towards those feelings. His wish to escape from his own distress, Ralph combined with Brown. History in this sense possesses an agency which must be resisted. The truly tough aesthetic of the new world neither explains nor forgives history. It refuses to recognise it as a creative or culpable force. It is therefore a myth, which is both created and denounced by Walcott's sensibilities. In both of these meanings of the term, history is negatively mythological. Correspondingly, vision with the eyes of history 
is distorted vision. He criticises the history deity, saying, Our hallowing of what is archaic is a process of the presumption of dominating time. He argues that were the Elgin marbles to be seen as originally painted, they would be condemned by those who currently venerate them for want of taste, as being painted in garish colours. History the Haunter tells Walcott that black people in the Caribbean have been displaced from their ancestral homes. Walcott then counters that ontology, what somebody in essence is, is independent of those origins. He observes the voracious, unreflecting calm of a group of Trinidadian fishermen. By all arguments, they should have felt displaced, seeing this ocean as another Canaan. But that image was the hallucination of professional romantics, writers and politicians. Four years later, he asserts, and this is on your handouts, Fishermen and peasant know who they are and what they are and where they are. And when we show them our wounded sensibilities, we are, most of us, displaying self-inflicted wounds. He acknowledges in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech 22 years later that when he was watching a dramatisation of the Ram Leela, I misread the event through a visual echo of history. Why should India be lost when none of the villagers ever really knew it? And why not continuing? For most of his career, Walcott has argued that the new world should develop a culture which rejected history the oppressor. In Michael Dash's term, a literature of renaissance, a literary aesthetic and reality based on the fragile emergence of the third world personality from the privations of history. Such a culture would swallow cultural amnesia itself in amnesia. For every poet, Walcott says, it is always mourning in the world. History, a forgotten insomniac night. The metaphors with which Walcott recurrently describes the new world and its culture are the myths of Crusoe and Adam. For example, Walcott gives a strange thanks to his black and white grandfathers that, exiled from your own Edens, you have placed me in the wonder of another. The conception of a second paradise belongs to that Christian mythology in which Walcott, as a Methodist, was raised. Walcott rejects the mythologization of older cultures, not the culture's myths themselves. Quote, the writers of my generation were natural assimilators. We knew the literature of the empires, Greek, Roman, British, through their essential classics. The great poets of the New World, from Whitman to Neruda, have paid their accounts to Greece and Rome and walk in a world without monuments and ruins, immune to the fearful magnet of older civilizations. Accounts are payable not by veneration, but by considering historical myths as myths and as art, not as history. Similarly, he says, art does not contain history. He also accepts European languages, in contrast, for example, with the Antiguan Jamaica Kincaid, who writes that the language of the criminal can only contain the goodness of the criminal's deed. Walcott considers that colonial language may be used anew through the new naming of things. Correspondingly, he condemns the unimaginative mythologization of African culture and despises the African phase with our pathetic African carvings, poems and costumes and our art objects which are not sacred vessels placed on altars but goods placed on shelves. Walcott here agrees with Wallace Soyinka, the Nigerian, who nicknames the Bolakaya movement Neo-Tarzanism the poetics of pseudo-tradition. And Franz Fanon, who in 1961 called on Nigerians to create a new syncretist culture rather than attempting to revive intact the culture disturbed by colonialism. One place in which Walcott tries to do exactly that is in his long poem, Omeros. The author of The Loss of El Dorado is concerned to recover history, Three of the characters in Omeros, the poem's narrator, who is an islander, Achille, 
and Dennis Plunkett have the same ambition, but they also wish to escape from history, and myth helps them in both. The Iliad and the Odyssey are apparent in a number of features. The poem's title, the character names Homer, Achille, Hector, Philoctete and Helen. Hector and Achille fight one another for Helen. Achille is finally victorious. Part of the plot is a protracted homecoming. Other parallels are less obtrusive, for example, the repeated references to ants. But the parallels are also obtrusively, not to say cheekily, undermined. Names and actions often don't match up. Whereas the characters' names are those of the Iliad, a narrative of public events, such plot links as, as exist are more to the Odyssey, a private narrative. It is Achille who journeys home. The line, sing muse of the wrath of Achilles, son of Peleos, becomes, I sang of quiet Achille, Aphelabe's son, who never ascended in an elevator. This gets explained. When the narrator meets Homer's spirit, he says of the Odyssey, I never read it, not all the way through. Walcott's comments on the poem reinforce this irreverence. In an impromptu lecture in 1990, he said that the last third of Amoros is a total refutation of the efforts made by two characters, the narrator and Plunkett, and that the poem pivots on itself and accuses itself of vanity, of the vanity of poetry, of the vanity of the narrator. This is particularly clear in Plunkett's case. The retired English major, Dennis Plunkett, pursues every coincidence between Homer and St Lucia in order to endow his chosen island and the woman with whom he is in lust with the mythical glamour of ancient mythology. Quote, her village was Troy, its smoke obscuring soldiers fallen in battle, then her unclouding face, her breasts were its pythons. He's so absorbed by these musing in his beachside bar that significantly he does not hear his waiter asking him to pay the bill. But the bill had never been paid. The narrator himself confesses, 18 stanzas from the end of the poem, that the name Helen gripped my wrist in its vice to plunge it into the foaming page. This suggests that the Homeric mythologization is performed precisely in order to be rejected, to enact exemplary resistance to the fearful magnet of older civilizations. But this reading doesn't quite work. At 323 pages, the poem is of epic length, and the analogies, albeit they sometimes cheekily undermined, persist throughout. Perhaps Walcott is rewriting and therefore pluralising Homeric epic. But the poem doesn't in any case imply that Homer is, in Bakhtin's sense, monologic. The last third of Amoros by no means decisively rejects Homeric analogies or, in fact, ridicules Plunkett's imagination. They are problematised throughout, but their rejection is not the raison d'etre, I would suggest, of the poem. This being the case, it begs the question of why else they are there. Breslin's guess is that the self-critique emerged in the course of composition, prior to which Walcott, Walcott takes Plunkett's quest seriously. Breslin attributes Walcott's impulse towards analogical discourse to colonial insecurity and precisely the mythologization of European literature and wish to ennoble his fellow St Lucians, which Walcott noisily denounces. Similarly, Burnett, but with no criticism intended, thinks that the analogy is intended to build self-respect in the Caribbean. On this reading, the poem resembles the brown family photograph in which the family stand before a painted backdrop of a ruined Greek temple. But Omros treats Homeric epic as in itself analogical and playful and plays with Homer's play. For example, the ants, which are connected both to St. Lucian slaves and to Greek soldiers. Walcott is a syncretic poet and shares that imaginative delight in making analogies which the narrator describes in Plunkett. The name, Helen, with its historic hallucination, brightened the beach. The butterfly to Plunkett's joy, twinkling from Myrmidon to Myrmidon. He smiled 
at the, myth- at the mythical hallucination that went with the name's shadow. Towards the end of the poem, the narrator asks, when would I not hear the Trojan War in two fishermen cursing? When would it stop the echo in the throat insisting, Omeros? When would I enter that light beyond metaphor? But it was mine to make what I wanted of it, or what I thought I wanted. These lines summarise, I think, as much as any lines of the poem can, the relations of the poem to to Homeric myth. Persistent practice and rejection of mythologisation. Possession by the myth, possession of the myth. Just as Walcott possesses the English language to do what he wants with in the poem. Unsureness of what it is that he wants. As Walcott says, my sign was Janus. I saw with twin heads and everything I say is contradicted. Strange though it may seem, in its unresolved critique of and participation in European mythologising views of the Caribbean, delight in imagination and rejection of it, Omros has something in common with the loss of El Dorado. There are two levels of plot in Omeros, what I'll call the factual plot, which follows a small group of people in modern Castries, capital of St Lucia, and the imaginary plot, which follows the flights of imagination made by various of these people. Major Plunkett and the narrator visit 18th century St Lucia and Holland. Achille travels to his ancestral village on the Congo at the time of the slaving raids. Walcott, like Naipaul, addresses absences of history which he felt personally. Half of me was with him, Achille in Africa, one half with the midshipman by a Dutch canal. Plunkett's and Achille's journeys are both parallel and contrastive. Plunkett chose to move to St Lucia with his wife Maud at the end of the Second World War, precisely because he then perceived it to be, like El Dorado, a place without history. Somewhere with its sunlit islands where what they called history could not happen. She deserved Eden after this war. As in the loss of El Dorado, the myth of historylessness is rejected by the poem and eventually by Plunkett, who begins to feel, like Naipaul, the absence of the island's history. He decided that what the place needed was its true place in history, that he'd spend hours, for Helen's sake, on research. On the one hand, this wish to abolish the néant d'une non-histoire imposée compensates for his former Edenic mythologizing. On the other, Plunkett's researches are the historiographical counterpart of his Homeric mythologizing. The latter connects St Lucia to European cultural tradition. The former considers St Lucia's true place in history to be precisely that point when it was touched by history. This is history in Walcott's deity history sense. And the touching, as for Naipaul, is tangential. That is, Naipaul researches Trinidad's use as a base for the, lo- for the search for El Dorado and Venezuelan revolution. Plunkett researches St Lucia's use as a base for the British fleet in the Battle of the Saints. This was a naval battle in 1782 between the French and the British, who won under Admiral Rodney. Like Naipaul, Plunkett simultaneously centres his compass on the island and describes it as marginal. Moreover, unlike the history which Naipaul studies, Plunkett studies British success. He is well aware, though, that the imperial deity history is soon to be pronounced dead. History will be revised and will be its villains. And when it's over, will be the bastards. Like Naipaul's, Plunkett's research is traditional and document-based. He rejects oral or ethnic history, as presented in a pamphlet which tells him that the island was originally named Eanolu, the Arawak for lizard. It's all folk malarkey. History was fact. History was a canon, not a lizard. He looks obsessively to documents to to establish history's physical details, and he's distressed by discrepancies between them. Plunkett recited every billet, regiment of the battle's numerological poetry. He learned 80 ships of the line. He focuses on his son, an ensign Plunkett, whom he uncovers in the documents. Like Naipaul, he makes no investigation of the lives of the colonised people. In fact, shows no more consciousness of dealing with slave islands than does the recent mythologising film series Pirates of the Caribbean. 
Unlike Naipaul, he uses locally available sources, probably including those Creole historians in whose tradition he stands. From the early 1950s, West Indian libraries were established and encouraged research into local history. Given Walcott's antipathy to history, it's unsurprising that historical research makes Plunkett withdraw from life. His life grew increasingly bookish and slippered like a don's. He stayed in. He begins to ignore his wife, Maud, failing to acknowledge her when she brings tea to his desk. She had never felt more alone, and she shortly dies. Yet, like Naipaul, he is aware of history's problems, and this is on your handouts. He had no idea how time could be reworded, which is the historian's task. The factual fiction of textbooks, pamphlets, brochures which he had loaded in a ziggurat from the library had the, in, had the affliction of impartiality. Naipaul's solution is to weave documents which are themselves full of emotion into a part postmodern historiographical fiction. The poem's narrator, and indeterminately Plunkett, uses Plunkett's factual fiction of textbooks as the basis for a flight of imagination which provides those details which the ziggurat full of books had not. This flight of imagination, like parts of The Loss of El Dorado, reads like a novel. Book two opens... The midshipman swayed in the coach, trying to read. Only gradually can the reader establish that the plot has shifted to 18th century Holland and that the midshipman is Ensign Plunkett working as a spy. The section is written with attention, late revelations and circumstantial detail of a spy story, which the poems temporarily become. The poem's flexibly rhymed and metered hexameter tatsarima allows for the effects of prose. In the subsequent description of the Battle of the Saints, the style modulates. Certain lines have the flavour of a second-rate imperial adventure poem. During the battle, a wave enters his ship and sets Plunkett against his own sword. It was a fatal wound, but he pulled out the sword. They found him face downwards, still holding to the sword. The heroic and nationalistic aspect is implicitly coloured by Plunkett's wishful imperialist thinking. Like Naipaul, the narrator slash Plunkett is enticed by the romance of the Caribbean imperial past. Thus, Walcott demonstrates deliberately, as Naipaul does less deliberately, that, in Homi Baba's phrase, historical narrative accedes to the language of fantasy and desire. Both writers imply that documents are limited and that a semi-fictional vision is as close, as a, to, is as close to the past as it's possible to get. The narration of the voyage of Achille makes the same point whilst treating precisely the slave's history which Naipaul and Plunkett overlook. Achille suffers sunstroke whilst fishing one day. He sleeps in his boat all night, during which he travels to a late 17th century Congan village and meets his ancestor, Afolabe. In the morning he wakes and returns to Castries. Ontologically and historiographically, this voyage is very different to that of the narrator and Plunkett to the 18th century. No documents are involved, not only because Achille would not take a ziggurat to the Castries Library to fill it with books, but because no documents about his ancestors' village exist. The African scenes are not, therefore, flights of imagination based on documents. The journey can have no postmodern fictional aspect. This begs the question of its causal source. Achille has some agency. Whilst beginning to fish, for the first time he asked himself who he was. That is, when he first feels the presence of history's absence, he voyages into it. A sea swift circled his boat, quote, like an answer, once Achille had questioned his name and its origin. She leads Achille to Africa. The cross made by the sea swift's body in the sky recurs throughout the poem as a metaphor for stitching together continents and times. The journey is also presented as one of memory. Out of the depths of his ritual baptism, something was rising, some white memory. The African village feast in which the costumes and dances are the same as in St Lucia at Christmas suggests that ethnic memory has survived in the new world. This is mixed with the memory of films which Achille had seen. In the Congo, quote, it was like the African movies he had yelped at in childhood. The endless river unreeled those images that flickered into real mirages. 
Of course, since Akhalil, unlike Plunkett, makes a physical journey, albeit imaginary, the past could have been presented as of the same order of reality as the factual plot. It isn't. It's a hybrid fabrication of a metaphorical swift, representing the poet, the memory of a people, Akhalil's consciousness of loss, and his memory of films. Important differences between Walcott and Naipaul remain clear. The theme of history concerns Walcott more than it does Naipaul. Whereas much of Walcott's poetry and drama struggles with history, Naipaul writes chiefly of the present in his fiction and travel writing. One obvious biographical correlate is that whereas Walcott has largely lost his African ancestral cultures, Naipaul was raised in a Hindi-speaking Hindu household. Walcott also, however, feels the haunting presence of known history more than Naipaul does. As a result, a strong trend exists in Walcott's writing of the rejection of history, the oppressor, and an accompanying conception of the Caribbean individuals or ontology as independent of history. Naipaul, on the contrary, demonstrates in his non-fiction the will to historicise the present in order to banish myths about the past which affect the present. He is an ostentatious mythoclast, including of imperial nationalist mythologies. Walcott nonetheless correctly detects the discourse of these mythologies in certain parts of Naipaul's writing. It would be wrong to say that Plunkett is a Naipaul figure. After all, Naipaul only wrote one work of history. Still, Walcott makes some of the same critiques of both men. Both writers, however, strongly oppose the negative mythologization of imperial cultures. They are syncretist, hybrid writers who take a lot from English literature and haven't hesitated to make the English language their own. They condemn the simplistic thought and feeling involved in mythologizing any culture. Yet both in practice display ambivalent positions with regard to mythologization of their home islands. Naipaul both subverts the myth of El Dorado and is affected by and displays its glamour. Walcott both rejects and lengthily and playfully engages in the Homeric mythologization of St. Lucia. The two works on which I've con- concentrated are contradictory and no decisive attempt is made by their authors to impose control of them. Naipaul and Walcott concur that simplistic myths demand mythoclism and history demands fictionalisation. These two processes can have a problematic relationship in a, in a work, as they do in The Loss of El Dorado. The ensign Plunkett scenes in Omeros are successful and simultaneously subverting imperial mythologization and embracing the fictionalising element which is necessary to reconstructing history. The Mimic Men's Ralph comments that all landscapes eventually turn to land, the gold of the imagination to the lead of reality. Naipaul often performs this reverse alchemy. Walcott, by contrast, at times insists that conceptually unmediated reality is itself gold. Both writers share, however, in a more, un- in a more conventional alchemy. To them, history is only accessible as the gold of imagination and mythologization is fool's gold. Thank you.